And may the Lord help us as we come to look at his word together. So if you can have a Bible or can look across at a Bible, we're going to be looking at the bits that were read. St. Isaiah 3 and 4. And Ben, I, I don't know whether there's a gentleman outside wondering whether to come in or whether he's um, wanting some. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question. What would you, ha- what would you write when life as we know it had completely collapsed, when the world order is shaken in a way that makes the stock market collapse look like a tiny wobble, when the Christian consensus seems to be on the losing side, when Christians are suffering, what would you write? What would you draw people's attention to? And in case you think I'm talking about now, I'm actually talking about the sack of Rome in 410 by the Visigoths. If you are an international student who is a Visigoth this morning, nothing personal is intended by this reference. Uh, in 410, the city of Rome was, uh, was destroyed and the whole of civilization seemed to have collapsed. And somebody did write something. It was Augustine, very famous Christian teacher. He was the pastor of a CDC side town. Just mention that. He wrote a Christian classic book called The City of God, or The City of God Against the Pagans, it was called. And in this situation of instability, anxiety, confusion, He said, this is what we need to look at, the city of God that doesn't get shaken, that doesn't get destroyed. He wrote it, it's a very long book, I've got a paperback version about that thick. Uh, To to explain to his people why this present life was always going to be flawed. So he tried to not get them to have too much hope in this present world. He wrote it to motivate his people to keep on going says there is something worth living for and dying for. And if you like, he wrote the city of God to put fire in their hearts and iron in their blood. That's the vision Pastor Augustine put before his people in that situation. And that's the vision that we're going to look at this morning because it's totally an Isaiah thing where did, Isaiah, where did Augustine get the idea of the city of God from? Well, one of the places he got it was from the book of Isaiah. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, the city of God. And my plan is that we will follow the sequence of, of the words in the chapters. We'll look, first of all, at judgment on the city. There's judgment on the leaders and the people. And then there's a second section of judgment on the city uh, put in terms of the women or the daughter of Zion. And then chapter 4 is mostly stark change about the beauty of the city. And I'll try and say a little bit about how you get from one to the other. Let me just take you back. When was this book written? It was written back in the time of the kings. Uh, 
It was written about Judah and Jerusalem, that's to say the southern kingdom back in those days. Kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Lots of things happened in that period of time. But just to remind us that the Jerusalem of which he was speaking, otherwise known as Zion, there's the city, uh, we're to understand it as being the city, which is the capital of the nation. And this nation, uh, in the time of the Old Testament, was had the particular privilege of being the one nation that God sort of took under his wing and adopted into his family and taught and looked after them. So it was a, 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 a city that had been chosen by grace, a nation that God had redeemed from slavery in Egypt. They'd been given God's word, God's laws, and it was the city where the great king uh, had his headquarters. So all of those things attached to this city. Um, as the history went on, there were different periods of, of time, different challenges. I think this sounds like it's written in a time of ease and prosperity, like the early part of this period. But it's always clear, it's always clear that the city that God is actually looking at is a future city. He's looking, as it were, through the current city to what it's meant to be in the future. And that's very clear as we go through these chapters this morning. So let me remind you of what we were looking at last time. There's a very stark clash, contrast between the fierce things that God says and the beautiful things that God says. And there's a fierce accusation and declaration of future judgment on that city as God saw it. As he looked at it in that period of time, he said, this is not what it's supposed to be. And you find that, well, we found that in chapter 2, verses 6 to 22, which we saw last time, where Israel had started to learn the ways of the nations. Do you remember? She became like the nations and worshipped idols. And the city was a city with blood on its hands. And that, that's, that continues to be the sort of theme through until we get to chapter 6. And then we have these extravagant, almost unreasonable, almost unbelievable promises about the future city, which is what we had in the first part of chapter 2 last time. The mountain of the Lord will be established as chief among the mountains, and all the nations will flow to it. So the very opposite of what was happening, the nations will come to Israel to learn about God rather than the other way around. And that happens all the way through. There they are. The nation, the, 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 the mountain is, rises up and people flow to find out about God. So that's what we've been looking at in the same sort of pattern today. So let's look at what it says. Chapter 3. See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food, all supplies of water, the hero and warrior, the judge and prophet, the soothsayer and elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skilled craftsman and clever enchanter. Isaiah loves lists. There's a list. There's a list of those. He says, I'm going to take all those away. And then he says, what you'll get instead uh, are 
childish leaders, verse 4, I will make boys their officials, mere children will govern them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor, the young will rise up against the old, the base against the honorable, and so on. So he says that this is what he will do to this city which is failing to follow him and failing to be what she should be. I will take away the worthy leaders and you will have childish, incompetent leaders. And the effect of this is for chaos in society. So it's interesting that having leaders in itself is not a wrong thing. In fact, it's a good thing. Having the wrong leaders is the problem. And we'll get to the point in chap- uh, chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, a man will seize one of his brothers at his father's home and says, you have a cloak, you be our leader. You take, take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day he'll cry out, I have no remedy, I have no food or clothing in my house, don't make me the leader of the people. So no one will want to be leader. So he's all discussing the leadership there. And he makes this charge in verse 8, Jerusalem staggers, Judah is falling, their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them, they parade their sin like Sodom. And he says that uh, God has his presence, his face, as it were, looking at Jerusalem, and they defy him. They turn against him. They, uh, it says their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. And I think perhaps one of the ways they would have done that would be to turn to idols. So I've revived my picture of an idol being worshipped there. And he goes on to say, The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. The sort of shamelessness about this. Woe to them. They have brought disaster on themselves. And there's something that is self-chosen about this. Uh, Something in which... Really, they've brought it on themselves, which is a sad, sad thing, isn't it? Uh, God's judgment uh, has that aspect of its working. If we choose not to have God in our lives, God says, okay, see what life is like without me. And we've chosen, uh, well, an empty way of life that, that is eventually destructive and self-destructive. That's what's going on here. If we skip over to verse 12, we find something about incompetent leaders. Youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. I think it's talking about the oppression here. Oh, my people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. And God says, this is what's happening, I judge you, verse 13 and 14. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment. Notice he is actually judging the people and their leaders. He rises to judge the people, verse 13. He enters into judgment with the elders and leaders of his people. But he has harsh words for the leaders. He says, 
It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. And you get a picture of the sort of society that he's addressing. The, the vineyard, thinking of the city in agricultural terms, is ruined. The poor are plundered. People are crushed. And this very uh, striking metaphor, you grind the faces of the poor. I've got somewhere uh, some people and a foot to stamp on them. Isn't that what it says in 1984? The picture of a boot stamping on a foot. So a boot standing on a face forever. A horrible picture of a society which is destroying itself, a society where, which has become inhuman, a society in which power and money are valued over people. A social structure of corruption and oppression where everyone actually who can exploits the weak for financial gain. Just thinking of the uh, recent change in leadership in South Africa, hasn't it been? With the outgoing president accused of corruption right at the top, uh, peeling off money and everybody else within that structure getting as much as they can so that it's the people right at the bottom who get their faces ground and uh, the whole society is affected by this. Now, without trying to analyse any particular country, we know what this means, don't we? we? We get a feel for this. And God says, I'm just so against that. That is so inhuman. Because the God of the Bible doesn't make us less human, he makes us more human. And this turning away from God has produced within Israel, who should know so much better, this inhumanity, this exploitation, this abuse of power. So just stopping to take breath on this, we, we learn that good leaders are a gift from God. The, the, the society that God has in mind is not leaderless. It has leaders. And we could also uh, suggest that it seems to be saying that people get the leaders they deserve. When the nation turns away from the Lord, this is the sort of leadership that he allows them to have or gives them. We learn that removal of leaders is a judgment. I will take your leaders away. And the presence of incompetent leaders is a judgment. And the Lord hates power-hungry, self-serving leaders who are in it not for the service that they can render, but for what they can get out of it. And that's uh, a horrible thing in any society. Of course, the church is not immune from this. And uh, New Testament warns the New Testament communities of having leaders who lord it over the flock is one of the things Peter says. There should not be an abuse of power. 
And he also warns, uh, the Apostle Paul warns the Ephesian elders not to be motivated by the money they can get out of Christian work. It's a little bit of a um, sort of caricature, isn't it, of the American TV evangelist who says, put your hand on the TV screen, you'll get cured But send, uh, as long as you send $100 to my ministry. And it's always been the case that uh, this is, there's always this potential for God's work, God's kingdom to be spoilt by abuse of power and the, just doing it for money. So let's go back and before we move on, just to take another breath and look at the verse that I skipped over, which is verse 10. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. So, a little um, address to the people in the middle of this. A call to them. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their deeds. If you'd been there in that, um, in that city all those years ago, you would probably have needed to hear something like that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have been thinking, it's all going wrong? Uh, most people have, have turned away from the Lord. Um, uh, the leaders are leading us in the wrong direction. You know, what's the point of anything, really? And here's this little gem of encouragement for them, which says... To the, to the righteous people, the people whose hearts are in the right place, tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will eat, NIV says enjoy, they will eat the fruit of their deeds. Here's a puzzled Israelite, and this word comes to them. Mind us that not, even in that society there, not everybody was corrupt and false. God had a few people this word remnant will be cropping up. He keeps a few people for himself. They're right with God. And there's a promise that even in this swirling torrent of judgment and corruption, that God has them in mind. Tell the righteous it will be well with them. There will, uh, actually, the word is good. The translation that most of us have says, tell the righteous it will be well with them. But in the original, it says it will be good for them. And that's a very rich word, isn't it? Tell the righteous there's good for them. That's what we all want, isn't it? Something in life that isn't bitter, disappointing, pointless, but something that's good. And he says, tell the righteous it's good good with them. And he says they will eat the fruit of their deeds. Another rather lovely picture. Uh, a, um, to eat the fruit of their deeds. The Bible talks a lot about the consequences of actions. And here, here are good actions. Maybe nobody has noticed them. A very famous good action that Jesus noticed of a woman who put a tiny little coin 
into the collection in the temple. Nobody else thought anything of it, but Jesus noticed it and said, that is really, she's done a wonderful thing. Uh, And here is God noticing the good, uh, the, the, the fruit of what people have done. And it's just a, a little snippet there that says, it's worth pressing on. In the New Testament, Paul writes to the, uh, to the Corinthians, and he has a big thing about the future resurrection, and then he says, and the point of that is this, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's a, a word of encouragement, isn't it? Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Um, they will eat the fruit of their deeds. So I just stopped to point out that the sort of right living, right person that he's addressing here, somebody right with God, does stuff. They will eat the fruit of their deeds. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let me introduce you to this species under threat, the Christian worker. Um, So you're thinking, oh, Christian worker, that's somebody who's paid by the churches to do stuff. And in the old days, a Christian worker was a Christian. That's what a Christian was. They would do stuff for the Lord. They might not be able to do a lot, but they would make it their their business to do something. Uh, I remember uh, Dick Lucas talking about, he's an Anglican clergyman, reflecting back on the time when a a number of churches closed, a particular branch of Christian churches closed, and he said, well, they closed, but what we got was people from them who were great Christian workers. So they left, their churches closed, but they found places in other churches to work. I just point that out. It says they will eat the fruit of their deeds. They did stuff. Anyway, let's move on. And I'm just going to take one more breath before we go into the next little bit. A reflection on leadership as we come over all these hundreds of years into the new covenant, into, the, into, the, into what Jesus brings. And of course, the great leader we find is Jesus. And uh, he has many names for his leadership. He's called a shepherd. So that's a a leader, because shepherds in those cultures would lead their sheep. It was the butcher who drove the sheep. The, the, uh, the, The shepherds would lead the sheep. He's called an overseer because he looks out and looks on his people. He's called the savior of his people. He's called the friend of his people. And of course, he's called the Lord of his people. And uh, there's the shepherd, there's the sheep. And uh, in the New Testament, we are encouraged strongly to take on his approach to leadership. Uh, And there's a passage in Philippians that some of you will be very familiar with, where he talks about the mentality of this leader who, being in very nature God, did not count equality with God something to be hung on to, but humbled himself and made himself into a servant and even became human and even died. And he says that's the the mentality that leaders ought to have. Let this 
mindset be in you, he says. And he says it to, actually not just to the leaders, but the whole church. That's the sort of society that Jesus comes to bring. Jesus didn't hang on to glory, but was willing to give it up sacrificially for the benefit of his people. And of course, the writer of that letter was postponing glory because he said, it would be great for me to go to glory now. He says that at the beginning of the letter. He says, but it would be better actually to postpone that because I can help you by staying here longer in this life. And uh, Ben was reminding us of another reference to leadership, the uh, reference to Timothy, the rare example, says Paul. He um, doesn't tell us how rare, but who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, not just his own interests. That's how it's to be in the New Testament. Um, looking out for the interests of others. And it's not just addressed to the leaders, but it's certainly expected of them. It's actually addressed to everybody. So I could address that to you. Uh, I've sort of wandered quite a long way from ancient Israel, but we've got to this point. Uh, We're meant not to be exploiting and trying to have power over one another. We're meant to look out for our best interests for one another's best interests. It's a bit of a challenge for us these days because we've got so many people in the meeting. If you just look round at the corner of your eye and you might think, I don't know many of these people. It is a challenge for us to get to know and to get to know how we can look out for the interests of one another. That's of the essence of what it is to be a Christian church. Anyway, I drew breath several times there. Let's go on to the next section, which is this bit about the women in verse 18. The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. So this is speaking of, uh, my translation says, the women of Zion. Anybody got anything different there? Women of Zion? More literally, daughters of Zion, or perhaps daughter of Zion. And that ought to alert us. It isn't simply referring to the female inhabitants, because daughter of Zion can refer to the city itself. It it said that in chapter 1, the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a a vineyard. It's, It's almost a way of expressing the whole population. So it can mean woman, daughter of Zion, woman, but it certainly leans over into saying the inhabitants of Zion or the population as a whole. So bear that in mind as he makes another rather stinging attack uh, on uh, of judgment on this or society looked at this way, or this section of society. So he he loves lists, as we've seen. So he has now a list of attractive ways of walking. Uh, Walking along with outstretched necks. I'm not going to try and demonstrate it to you. Flirting with her eyes, tripping along with mincing steps with ornaments jingling around their ankles. And he says, this is what the city looks like. This is what they're trying to do. This is another sort of power thing. Uh, of um, 
trying to attract a man in this case. He's trying to attract a mate, isn't it? And he says rather stingingly, the Lord will bring sores on the head of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. Then we have another list. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, bangles, headbands, crescent necklaces, earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume bottles, charms, signet rings, nose rings, fine robes, capes, cloaks, purses, mirrors, linen garments, tiaras and shawls. It's almost like a department store, isn't it? Uh, first floor for tiaras and shawls, second stores for... etc. And I think I've missed out a click here. Just bear with me. The catwalk is going to be turned into uh, this horrible, I don't know, like outpatients department, sores on the heads of the women of Zion. And then this list of accessories, I think, is that the correct generic term for these things? That with which one accessorizes uh, the perfume bottles, charms. All of this will be become... Uh, exchanged for, well, really, he's, he's thinking about what's going on in, in Syria at the moment when your city gets, or your supermarket and shopping mall gets bombed and your water supply gets cut off and soldiers come and take you away. And he says that instead of fragrance, there'll be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword. Your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, she will sit on the ground. So we've moved from the catwalk to this really heartbreaking picture of this woman. um, Clothes all gone. Finery all gone. Dignity all gone, just family support all gone, sitting on the ground weeping. She sits on the ground destitute. And uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, In that day seven women will take hold of one man and say, We will eat our own food, we'll provide our own clothes, but just let us be called by your name and take away our disgrace because we're alone, vulnerable, we're nobodies now. This is what happens in war, isn't it? All the men go off to war, uh, get killed, and, and you get this disproportionate number of women who are left on their own. It happened in the First World War, didn't it? Yeah. It happened in the Second World War. And the attraction of a supporter, a mate, a partner, turns into a scramble to grab anything that remotely looks like a breadwinner or a protector. And we've entered now a state of shame. The city turns out to be a destitute city, a shamed city, a widow city. Uh, the catwalk becomes the breadline. So let's just reflect on this a little bit. It, it, it's put in terms of uh, the female, it's put in terms of the of the women. Uh, I think our society is sort of trying to obliterate sexual differences. I'm not quite, quite sure how to... Our society is very confused about this. I think the Bible is, is keen to say men and women are different. There's something 
There are strengths and, and weaknesses about men. There are strengths and weaknesses about women. And there are particular glorious things about women. The, uh, the woman is, uh, it says in the New Testament, is the glory of the man. Um, whatever that is, that's what it says. And here is the glory aspect of, of the city. That, that which should be beautiful and attractive. That which should be nurturing and the sort of mothering. And that is the bit that gets hit. That's the bit that is ruined. That's the aspect that he's talking about here. And I take this opportunity to go off in the opposite direction and say, there's this poor, sad, ruined city the daughter of Zion. But, as we shall see in a moment, but I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, God says, I will have a beautiful city. And the very end of the Bible says, I saw the holy city prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now is the dwelling of God with men. The Bible uses that female feminine angle to say that's what God will have he will have a glorious city there I've drawn a glorious bride that's one of the things about the church it says in in the New Testament Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to take away the spots and blemishes and wrinkles, the loneliness, the ruinedness, the shame, and to make her holy and to present her to himself as a radiant church. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's a beautiful way of putting it that God will, will take what was ugly, destitute, abandoned, ruined, and make beautiful, glorious and uses the idea of the bride to do that. Let's go on into the next section, which really does give us the positives. So this is um, now chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, so now we've got a long collage of descriptions about what it will be in that day. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all Mount Zion and those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day, a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. So let's think a little bit about that. The, he starts off with this vegetable description. So branch, fruit, and Bible scholars say, what is he referring to? Because later on, it, the branch refers to the king. Is that what he means here? Well, I'm not quite sure. 
Is this one person he's referring to, or is he using branch to mean the, the sort of revived, perking up um, new city? Well, he says the branch, so let's draw a branch. And he says it's got fruit, so let's put some fruit on it. And these are the people that come through this, the surviving people. And he uses some words, beautiful, glorious, the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. And by way of real contrast with the sharpness of judgment, think of those words, adornment, glory, pride, beauty. These are the words he speaks of what will be true about the city. And it's the Lord, the branch of the Lord. And then there's another thing about the Lord. The Lord, verse (coughs) 4, excuse me, will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem. So there's a washing that takes place, a powerful washing. In one of the Psalms, David says to the Lord, wash me and I will be clean. Make me whiter than snow. There's lots of things in our world which contaminate and lots of analyses which show how things are going wrong. But there's precious little in this world which shows us how we can be clean. But it says the Lord will wash away. The Lord can make clean. And then it says the Lord will create over Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke. It's picture language, so let's not try and analyse it too deeply because we don't try and do it reasonably quickly. But it's something the Lord creates. The Lord makes a new, wonderful, beautiful thing. Uh, And he's there in on it. The smoke smoke by day and glow of flaming fire by night suggests the symbolism of his presence. And I want us to think about the canopy, end of verse 5. You think, a canopy? Why do they need a canopy? What is a canopy? Well, I looked it up in the books of people who know about these things. And they say this is what in those days would be used for a honeymoon suite. It would be the canopy, the... um, Give me another word for a canopy... Uh, Covering, yeah, like a a canvas covering or something like a tent. And it would be particularly used over the place where the bride and the bridegroom would be when they were married. And if you, assuming that's correct, it makes this a rather beautiful continuous picture, doesn't it? Of the destitute Jerusalem now becoming the bride, uh, the beautiful bride. God does a new thing. And there's other connections there as well. It'll be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the wind. So there's shelter and, and safety in this place. Uh, the more you think about it, the more wonderful this picture is. Adornment, beauty, cleaning. The... Uh, 
the bridal suite, as it were, God's bridal suite for his people. And the, the shelter and the security, he says that you won't any longer be troubled by from the heat of the day or the storm and the rain. Every human heart longs for that, doesn't it? We, we live in a world of trouble. We live in a world of insecurity. And God says, here in this place, there is security and shelter and safety. And he's talking about the assembly of God, the, the, the place where he gets his people together. Very important we realize that. It's a corporate picture. It's a group picture. It's getting people together. And uh, it's a future picture. It'll be, it'll be fulfilled in the future. That's, what, uh, that's the future hope of Christianity. And very important that we realize there's a future aspect to Christian faith. But in this present world, the nearest thing we have to it is the churches. That's the groups of Christian people. Uh, a group in the Lord, a group belonging to the Lord, a group where the Lord is. It's a very, very precious thing. We look at it through the spectacles of this text. For Christian people to be together, to to some extent share their lives together, care for one another. These things are in, not full measure, but in genuine reality, true of the church now. There's a degree of beauty. There's a degree of security And I think this is such an attractive picture, don't you? Wouldn't you say on the basis of this bit of the Bible, what a privilege to belong to this group. What a privilege to be part of God's city, if I can put it that way. Um, We'll sing in a moment. um, Saviour, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in your name. It's a wonderful thing to belong to the city of God. Even now, in her incomplete and vexed and um, unsatisfactory state, because that's what the church is at the moment, but this is where God's at work. And how, like Nehemiah, we should be concerned for the city of God. You know, if its gates are burned with fire, that should upset us and make us pray. What a thing to look forward to. This is, this is what God has said to our human race is the one thing that we can confidently look forward to. This is the one thing that we should align our lives so that we don't miss this. So that whatever direction we're going in, it should be at its end point that we arrive at the city of God. There's nowhere else to go. This is where we want to be headed. You know, when John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he had it right. That was, that, 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 that's, that's what the world needs to know. So let me just wind up because I said I'd try and say a little bit about how you get from the judgment to the city. And I don't think he actually tells us, but I think he tells us a few things. So you have to come back next week to find out a bit more. Uh, I don't think he tells us, but it's pretty clear that he's not saying, turn over in a new leaf, try harder, do your best, and then you'll get there. It's not hinging on the merit of adequate performance. He's not saying try harder. Because he's, 
he says, unless the Lord had left us some survivors, we would have been like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. The people who are survivors, they make it through the, the judgment. And this is an act of God's kindness, which is a rather inexplicable one. And it, it flags up this whole matter of God choosing to safeguard some people just because he chooses to do so. It's, the technical Christian word is grace, and the word that's used in ISI for this people is a remnant, a, a people who deserve to be swept away, but he sort of says, nope, we'll keep those on one side by kindness, a remnant by grace. So if, if you're thinking about what it is to be a Christian, just bear that in mind. Christianity isn't try hard to do your best. It's I need God to do something for me that I don't deserve. Second thing, it is hinging on the strong promises of God for future action. So this whole section that we're looking at, it's got these promises sort of planted into it. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And I rather loved the wills. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful. Uh, the Lord, oh, um, the Lord will wash away the filth. God saying, "I will do this." Uh, that was something that for them was the future. Some, some of the things that God has done are in the past where God says, I have done this. And there's one place in history where somebody says of what will be done and they say, I've done it. And one place is where Jesus died on the cross and he um, sort of thought-provokingly, to say the least, on the cross when he had suffered, said, finished. So he'd done something. And I think this all links up. This puts us in the realm of trusting in promises. And that's a very important part of Christian, the Christian way of relating to God, to trust his future promises. And another thing that there is here, there's quite a lot about fire. The uh, melting away by fire, washing away by fire. Fire is a a, a powerful force, and we'll find out a bit more about that as the chapters go on. But somewhere there is a firestorm of judgment which can't be avoided. I'll just leave it at that. And let me say one other thing here, that the as the, as, as the prophecy goes on, there are little places where God engages with people and says, will you be willing on this? Will you come with me on this? The Lord, in a personal way, asks for willingness. Do you remember in the first chapter, he says, come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient... So God is looking for some, uh, you could say, softness of heart, some openness, or what he's not looking for is a, a sort of stubbornness, where you say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take any notice of God. He's looking for the opposite. He, he, he's engaging and saying, now will you, 
Will you say yes to me on these things? Will you go with me on these things? Will you open yourself up to me with these things? If you're just on the very, very edge, will you tiptoe a little bit further forward? Because he's saying, you know, this is an interpersonal thing. I want you to be willing. I want you to engage with me on this. The unwilling of whom it said their words and deeds are against the Lord. If you are willing and obedient... You will eat of the good of the land. So I could ask, end up with two questions. I could put it this way. I could say, will you have this city to be your city? Will you say, that's where I want to belong. This is the city I want to be part of. Or if we put it into the marriage language, I could say, will you take this God of Israel, the Lord, to be your God, as it were, will you take him to be your lawful wedded husband to have and to hold from this day forward till death us do part, except it won't. Uh, Let's sing something together.